We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Well, welcome to our podcast. This is the first ever recorded episode of Stay Classic San Diego, a podcast sponsored by Max Lux Media with your host, myself, Steve Weyer. I'm a freelance reporter affiliated with the Coast News, the North Coast Current, among other organizations. Um, and on my left, we have Tony Kranz, and on my right, we have Cindy Cremona. Um, Cindy has been a resident of San Diego since 1986 and has lived in Encinitas since 2011. Um, Cindy and her partner, Mark Snyder, live in a small home in older Lucadia neighborhood. Um, she's a successful owner of an executive recruiting firm since 1993. Um, she's also an advocate for the Our, Our Neighborhood Voices statewide local control petition. Um, Cindy's now running for mayor. Um, she's uh, brand, branded herself as an advocate for local control. Um, Cindy supports developers shouldering more responsibility for Encinitas to meet its housing requirements by building 50% affordable housing and to be required to contribute more to infrastructure improvement. Um, on my left, we have Tony Kranz, current city councilman. Um, Tony Kranz moved to Encinitas um, when he was just a baby in 1960. Um, he graduated from San Diego High School in 1977, attended college at Palomar and Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. Um, and he has served as an air traffic control in the National Guard. Um, he has three children with his wife, Cynthia. Um, Tony enjoys sports and is a big fan of the Padres. Is that right? Um, and uh, continues his work in the graphic arts industry with photography and printing sales. Tony was elected to the Encinitas City Council in 2012 and is working to promote policies that help protect our natural resources, improve our quality of life, and address social justice issues. Now, right off the bat, I'd like to get into some of the uh, meaty topics. This morning, as I'm sure you both are aware, there was a a shooting in Encinitas. Um, A a coffee shop owner was actually um, shot and grazed in the head, and I'm told that he's in stable condition right now. But um, I think that the thing about this incident is that it reflects on a broader issue that people are concerned about with terms of the crime rate in Encinitas. Um, the individual was also apparently an unhoused individual, so it relates to issues um, that people are concerned about in terms of um, our unhoused population. So um, I'd like to start with you, Tony, which is um, what is your perception right now of Encinitas's crime level? Um, and what do you think the public perception is? Because the Sandag numbers last year indicated, um, or earlier this year indicated that crime rose in Encinitas by 31% from 2020 to 21. Um, now, I am aware that as of today, there are actually more recent numbers, um, which show that overall crime has risen slightly since 2018, but it declined since last year as of the six-month period that we're in so far. So what do you think the accurate perception is of crime, but con- compare and contrast that with like sort of the public perception of, of crime in this city? Well, Thank you, Stephen. And uh, I would speak to these issues generally. I I should say that the Sheriff's Department is investigating and uh, will be soon releasing um, the information they have available regarding the incident this morning. Um, You're correct. It was a homeless individual and uh, someone who was well known to the Sheriff's Hope Team. We have sheriff deputies that specialize in working with the homeless. He had been offered services on a number of occasions and re- and refused to, to have help from the, the government. So um, 
once they refuse, that's about all we can do. We continue to work with them as much as possible, but uh, obviously, you know, if somebody's unwilling, we can't force them to do things. Uh, in the meantime, uh, with regard to uh, safety, I think that the majority of people in our community feel quite safe. We are one of the safest cities in the state. Uh, obviously, if somebody has been a victim of crime, they don't feel that. You know, there's the the, the impact of having been violated is real, and uh, I'm not about to minimize those impacts um, because uh, I know I've experienced it myself. Uh, in the meantime, we work with the Sheriff's Department and have assured them that whatever resources they need um, to feel like they're doing their job, uh, they're more capable of doing their job, is is uh, available. All they have to do is ask. And uh, at this point, the Sheriff's Department feels comfortable with the level of resources that they have, and, and uh, um, you know, but we stand ready for, you know, any requests that may come our way. Sure. But this this whole public perception, um, and I, it's not universal, but it seems as though there's a public perception from conversations with residents that, um, you know, crime is at an all-time high. Um, but whether or not it's that true, like, how do you see that public perception? How do you relate it to, um, like, how, how does that sort of inform your approach if you were to be elected mayor to the issue? Well, the reality is that, you know, the, the statistics often, you know, vary, right? They, mm-hmm. they, they rise, they lower. It's, it's not a constant. Um, we just had a drop in crime rate, um, like you said, uh, when last time it went up a bit. Um, the reality is that the numbers that we're talking about are, um, you know, in, in relative terms, quite low. Um, and that's what gives the city of Encinitas the ability to say we're one of the safest cities in the state. Um, the people who, you know, are, are the public perception, uh, I hear plenty of people that are complaining about the situation, both with homelessness and crime. And, you know, I'm, all I can say is that the city is taking steps and uh, supporting the sheriff's department in addressing the issues that, uh, you've raised. Yeah. So, Sidney, I'm going to turn to you. So, um, first of all, this public perception, do you think that it's, it's accurate? Do you think that it's in line with the most recent data? Um, but secondly, um, if you're elected, like, what are you going to do differently? Like, what isn't being done now that you would do? And, like, what level, what, how, how can a mayor play a role in crime reduction, in your opinion? So I do think that any good news that we've had from Sandag is directly related to our sheriff's deputies and the job that they have been doing for the city. Uh, Not necessarily because of any activity performed by our city council. I think we have a a new uh, sheriff's captain, uh, fairly new, and he's very proactive. In my numerous and and most recent conversation with me, he has told me time and again the number one uh, call that they have for service is for homelessness. And when I did my drive along a couple of months ago, every call that we went on was a homeless issue. So I think that there is an issue. Uh, Perception by the public is pretty right on, especially since we have been considered a a fairly safe residential uh, touristy town where uh, people felt safe going out at night, going to the store. I personally don't any longer. Um, I rarely go out shopping or any place, especially downtown, uh, in the evenings alone. 
Um, so there is a perception. We have had some good news. So the trend, I believe, because of our uh, the diligence of our sheriff's deputies, has gone down. What we need to do is further work with them to continue keeping those numbers go to, uh, heading down. Um, I do know that uh, the problem that we were having with uh, uh, home uh, burglaries uh, due to the South American uh, crime gangs, uh, they've been caught, that's been reduced. So, so the numbers are, are definitely reflecting that. Um, what I'd like to do as mayor would be to work uh, with the sheriff's deputies, um, continue along the lines uh, that uh, they're performing now. Uh, they did tell me that they do need some help. Uh, they'd like to see an extra sheriff's deputy downtown on the weekends. Uh, I'd like to see funding help them there. Um, and as I've said before, there's a few things that we can do in regards to homelessness. Um, number one, um, we can enforce our code. Number two, we could work more proactively and partner and have active contracts with cities that have and provide homeless shelters, uh, mental health services, and um, drug addiction services. I personally do not advocate for a homeless shelter here in Encinitas, and I'll tell you why. Um, primarily because we are residential, we do have a lot of tourists, which is a, a huge part of our revenue. Um, and I personally don't believe that the residents would support it. Secondly, uh, there was an opportunity for money for a homeless shelter that three other North County cities took. Um, and two big questions, who would pay for it and in whose neighborhood would it go? And I, I just can't imagine any neighborhood would feel very comfortable having a homeless shelter there. And lastly, um, I just don't think we have the support services. We're just, we're, we're again, more of a residential uh, type city where we don't have the support services to uh, help those in need of shelter, uh, mental health services, and uh, drug addiction services. Sure. So um, I do want to move to homelessness in a moment, but I just, to backtrack to the crime issue, um, and it, it's so interrelated, it's, it's kind of hard to talk about one without the other. But uh, just just to clarify for, for everybody's knowledge, so the Sandag numbers that came out today um, from my assessment, um, and this is according to the Coast News, I didn't write the article, but uh, Encinitas, property and violent crimes dropped 4 and 13%, and crime decreased overall by 5% since last year. However, compared to 2018, the city's overall crime rate has risen 6%, um, with property crimes up 7% and violent crimes down 2%. Um, now... Uh, Cindy, I believe in a conversation earlier, you said you'd looked at um, this data now. Do you, uh, you got a bit of blowback for the comments you made Monday about yeah. crime being down, um, especially from uh, Michael Bloeb, um, who kind of challenged you on the issue. Um, do you stand by those comments or what, what is the data telling you? Well, the data telling, is telling me or telling us we are on the right track. Our sheriff's deputies are proactive. And it tells me that we have to continue that trend. Um, and I know that in my last conversation with the sheriff's captain, that uh, they are working diligently at keeping our parks uh, uh, free of homeless encampments overnight. Uh, but it's a challenge because they don't have specific places to offer them and laws won't 
uh, won't allow you to move people out unless you have some place to offer them. So we've got to make sure that we can offer homeless people uh, a roof over their heads or services. And if they don't accept them, then we have more of a reason to say, sorry, you can't sleep in our streets and on our parks. It's not compassionate. It's not safe. It's not hygienic for the homeless and for residents. So uh, I think it's important that uh, we follow the law and do everything that we can to help these people. But <clears throat> we have to keep the residents' safety and the overall safety of our entire city uh, first and foremost. Sure. So I think there's this perception with homelessness that there's sort of two camps, not, not that you can't take both sides, but uh, there's a camp of people that I know very well who believe that homelessness um, more broadly is largely an issue of housing, housing availability, finding opportunities for housing, um, low-income housing. Um, there's sort of another camp, um, and again, there's crossover, but there's a, a camp that sort of believes that really there's more fundamental causes of homelessness that aren't addressed just through housing alone. Issues of mental illness, issues of substance abuse, and so forth. So, Tony, this next question is for you, which is, um, first of all, kind of where do you fall in that spectrum? Like, do you sort of have a focus on the homelessness problem in terms of one specific arena? And secondly, um, when it comes to drug addiction, mental illness, those sorts of underlying causes, like what, what is your approach as, as, as potential mayor? Um, well, the benefit of having served 10 years on the city council is that I've been wrestling with this issue for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's a, an ongoing challenge, no question. I'm a big fan of the work of a organization called Community Solutions, which is run by Roseanne Haggerty. And I would Im- encourage everyone to look up the podcast between Roseanne Haggerty and Malcolm Gladwell. And several years ago, it was recorded and ta- she talked about the work that she's dedicated her life to, which is ending homelessness. Um, there's a, re- a need to know each individual that's homeless and to know why they're homeless. Some, as you point out, are have mental health issues. Some are addicted. Some have both situations. And the reality is that there are also people that are neither mentally ill or addicted. They just are down on their luck. They're, you know, one paycheck away and they had an accident and they can't work for a month and they don't have any money to pay rent. It's, it's a situation that, you know, they're, but for the grace of God might go I. And, you know, what we really need to do is step up, get to know how to solve these problems by getting to know the people that we're dealing with. And uh, the county has embraced the uh, community solutions approach. And I think that that's where the city of Encinitas is likely to head to if I become mayor, because um, that by name list that the county is going to start working on is going to provide every jurisdiction in the county with the ability to know who is in their community and why they are living on the streets. So um, that's good. But I also want to get back to this question of crime. You know, the reality is that we're the city council is a policy board. We don't go out and fight crime. We hire people that are expert at the job of fighting crime. And we've had some great captains come through the city of Encinitas and lead the sheriff's department. And we've got a great people group of people that are working for the sheriff's department wearing a badge, carrying a sidearm, and I'm proud to have their endorsement. The Deputy Sheriff's Association has endorsed me to become the next mayor. And I will continue to support the needs of the Sheriff's Department. And, you know, there's nothing more important than keeping our community safe. So there will be no, I will take a backseat to no one when it comes to resourcing the Sheriff's Department to the degree that they want. And, you know, it's... uh 
I, I trust Captain Lopez um, and the requests that he make. Uh, I went, also went on a ride along, um, and we had one encounter with a homeless person, and it was at D Street. And a homeless person was sleeping on the bench, and the deputy that I was riding with shined his flashlight over there and said, "Oh, I know him. He's perfectly fine." And he didn't. We didn't get out of the car with him because there was no threat. Um, you know, there were other criminal issues that we had to deal with the night I rode along, and and um, you know, there's there's crime. That's not breaking news. And you know, I'm not minimizing it. We're going to continue to fight to keep our community safe and always strive to make it safer. Sure. So I think there's this perception uh, of Encinitas as sort of, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of this perception of Encinitas as sort of this like sanctuary city for the homeless. Um, you know, Encinitas has the safe parking lot program. Uh, and there's a lot of residents have talked to me about concerns regarding the influx of people who are not from Encinitas, who are, who are not local, that are coming um, into Encinitas. And so are, I'm, I'm curious if e- either of you are sort of concerned about Encinitas as sort of this magnet for attracting um, people who believe that it's a, a sort of a sanctuary city and whether that's a concern at all. Either of you can. Uh, I consider it a misperception. We are not a sanctuary city. We have not declared ourselves a sanctuary city. There's no resolution that says we're a sanctuary city. That's just shorthand people have come up with and they want to criticize the the city council for the work that we're doing. And, sure. you know, the reality is that people come to Encinitas uh, because it's a, the climate is, uh, you know, a place yeah. where sleeping outside isn't going to cost you, you know, you're not going to get frozen yeah. overnight, you know. And um, the reality is if you drive to Carlsbad, you drive to Oceanside, you go over to Escondido, every jurisdiction has challenge with homeless people. And, you know, we're, you know, the, the numbers are going to vary. Um, the reality is that it's a, it's a, the homelessness knows no boundary. And so they're going to come from Encinitas and go to Carlsbad. They may go from Carlsbad to Vista. And what we really need to do is work with the region to address homelessness. I can assure you that no jurisdiction is going to make a deal with us for us to provide them with our homeless people in a shelter. So I know it's tempting to say, let some other city have the homeless shelter. But, you know, the reality is that it's very unlikely to happen. And the deputies who have to transport homeless people to those other jurisdictions will be taken off the street because they're having to drive these homeless people to the other city's shelter. So we need to work with the community. I think we can solve the problem in terms of where to locate a shelter. There are some pretty reasonable ideas out there, and and I think that it's worth exploring. It's part of our homeless action plan. One of the first things I will do in the new year when I become mayor is have a, a community workshop. We'll have a summit on homelessness. We are coming up on the two-year anniversary of our homeless action plan. We need to see what's working and what's not. And we'll talk about, you know, whether we should continue to have as a goal having a shelter in Encinitas. Sure. Uh, Cindy, do you want to end that question? Sure. Um, When I think about a summit in community meetings, I think about the community meetings that we had in regards to the homeless parking lot and how the residents' voices were not only unheard and unaddressed, but the city didn't even go to the residents and tell them that they were putting a homeless parking lot into their community or next to a school. So there is absolutely a transparency issue in our city government. And Tony, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you. And I appreciate 
your answer and I appreciate your service, but you've had 10 years. That homeless action plan, which has been unbudgeted and unfunded, has been around for two years. I'm not a fan of the homeless action plan, but very little has been done besides the homeless parking Except lot. Except we hired a housing coordinator out of that homeless <laughs> did he, action plan. Yeah, he uh, was, Did he, he just quit? Uh, yeah, because, you know, there were a lot of challenges with people that continued to, you know, pummel him with emails. Because and and Carlsbad want- offered him a, a, another opportunity, and we're going to have to hire to fill that position. It's a challenge, and we may need to resource the job more. We may n- need to have another position as well. And I'm sure that he was very challenged because we are not, we're not proactive enough in managing the issue. And many, many residents are very concerned about the amount of homelessness that they're seeing in the streets, in our parks downtown. And I I find it concerning as well. We should have been more proactive from the beginning. Yes, it is a complicated problem. Yes, it is not only a national, but it's a regional and it's a state issue. But other cities manage it better and are much more proactive. Solana Beach, Del Mar, absolutely. Solana Beach has 10,000 people. Del Mar has 5,000 people. Check out Carlsbad. They've got a department of five people that are dealing with this issue, and it's a brand new department. And they have a homeless police force, and they're very, very And we do, too. We do, too. We have a small per team. Our sheriff's department... No, it's a cop team and a hope team. There's two that that focus on homelessness. So in the end, you know, the reality is that we are doing... We're implementing the Homeless Action Plan. We will have a two-year anniversary discussion about what we may need to add. And when the residents tell you in force that they do not want a homeless shelter, what well, are you going to do? Here's here's the problem. Is that not a, we, answer that question. What are you going to do? If the residents the don't want it, the what are you going to do? Here's the problem. Is that the residents, there are a bunch of residents who tell us they want to address this. There are Faith in Action up at St. Andrews is very actively involved in dealing with the homeless. There are many faith-based organizations in our community that support the work that we're doing. And there are many and residents you, and, who live in our community right, so, who will not so this support is the, it. This is the challenge that you yes. see when you sit as an elected official. Yes. What do you do when you've got two groups of people that are telling you different things? What decision do you make if you find that there are significant numbers of people that want you to do one thing or the other, but you can only do one. Right. But if you've got an organization that's faith-based in our city and most of the residents don't live in the city, well, then you have to... You, it, is the, it, it is about our residents, it's, Tony. It always has been. I'm a, a, I'm a lapsed Catholic, but I know St. John's Church has a whole lot of Encinitas residents. I know St. Andrews has a whole lot of Encinitas residents. And I know there are a yes, lot of advocates. And, but, you know, yeah. the reality is that there are going to be differing opinions on this. And the challenge is to navigate a path that people will accept as a reasonable path. And you may oppose it, but if you're just all about saying no, then nothing's going to get done. And so, you know, what is the solution? And I just told you that the community solution is a good one. Right, but I'm telling you that there are other solutions without putting a homeless shelter in somebody's neighborhood. And I think many people would agree with that. And we're going to go from, we're going to go from a homeless action plan that's done very little in two years to having a shelter. How about all of the support services that go with that homeless shelter? Who's going to pay for it? Is well, the state going to pay the, for the it? The county might pay for it. There is state funding. There's all sorts of 
possibilities. Are you going to ask but the, the taxpayers is, to pay for the rest of it? Well, the taxpayers are. There are county taxes, there are state taxes, and there may be some general fund money that comes out of it. But if you want that problem solved, just trying to wash your hands of it and kicking them out to another another community isn't going to work very well. And so this this issue of homelessness clearly has driven some political activity. We have three candidates that are running that were in the middle of opposing the safe parking program. I want to remind you that I voted against the safe parking program initially because the reality is I didn't think we did the the necessary work to lay the foundation for community I, I, I support. I certainly agree. So, you but know, you in the meantime... This, but you guys made the same mistake twice. What... This is... This is the did part, I vote no twice? This is part of the problem. Answer my question. Did I vote no twice? Did you? I did, yes. And how about the final time when it I was... I did. I appreciate that. But... The issue for most residents is the lack of transparency. And Tony, you have been on that council where this continuing lack of transparency is is across the board. And I appreciate you're wanting to be a leader now, but we've needed leadership the last 10 years. And many, many residents don't feel we've had it. You were at the meetings speaking to the issue. Is that not transparent? I was at which meeting? You were at the city council meetings opposing this safe parking lot. I was at the on city a number ca- of occasions at, for the first parking lot. I never attended any of the meetings for the second location. Well, they were on Zoom, but yeah. And in uh, the meantime, I, I, I didn't. I, right. I didn't speak at any of those, but I did speak to the first one because it did affect our neighborhood. Right, and we found is, out through a, through a it, next was door. Was that not post. transparent? It, it, it was on the agenda. It, it was transparent after it had expired. I mean, I'm, I'm not expired. It, after it had, had been um, posted on next door, you would have this. The city council was already in the act of making the arrangements with Leech Tag before a resident heard you talking in a meeting and exposed what was going on. The residents were up in arms, as you remember. I do remember very well the January 22nd meeting where neighbors stayed till all hours of the night um, uh, sharing their concerns with the council. And the council decided that it was going to put that homeless parking lot in. And what was the vote? I think the vote was, uh, was it 4-1? Yeah. I think it was Mm -hmm. 4-1. And I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But that is one issue. And I I never blamed any specific homeless issues directly on that homeless parking lot and the folks who were there. My concerns are that we're going to move to the next level and put a homeless shelter in and take more resources towards it and put it in someone's neighborhood. And more debt, more bad decisions will be made on top of the bad decision of putting it in the community center next to a school. We had an event at Oak Crest Park, uh, which is right behind the community center. And the proprietress, who's been with that park for 16 years, came right to me and said, I hope if you're elected that you can do something about the homeless that I am constantly calling the sheriffs about. We have an issue that is right next to our community center. Children are using the parks. Yes. And so that's the homeless issue. That's not the safe parking lot. The safe parking lot are people in cars that have to leave. Yeah, I haven't said a word and about so this. In the meantime, I haven't said a word about the, the safe the parking homel- lot. The I, I'm talking issue, about homeless living right. on, on our streets and, and in our And parks. so you can't have it both ways. You can't complain about the homeless issue and then say we can't solve it by putting in a shelter. So that's the challenge. Is you that, can't how have you, it both ways. I, I absolutely how you gonna, disagree. How are you going to address homelessness without a shelter? We are going to address it by enforcing our laws, partnering with other agencies to offer 
Oh, the other agencies is a challenge. The the other agencies is a challenge, and if you do the work, Mm -hmm. you can get it done. Other cities do it. Final thoughts on this topic, It's all about doing the work. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts on homelessness? I want to move to, to density. Let's yeah, we're going to we're going to take a look at our homeless action plan in in the first of the new year, and we will have this conversation about whether the homeless action plan should consider a shelter or not. And you know, there will be a uh, vigorous conversation, I'm sure. Cindy, any final thoughts? There you go, folks. Homeless yeah. shelter or not. Okay. I think that is the 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 difference between the two. Uh, did I say that, that I I'm convinced that there's going to be a homeless shelter? No, I said I'm going to have a community right. conversation. So, you know, let's let's, you. let's let's do well, this. I will. We will hold you to it if this, you were elected. A little bit, of in, 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 you know. But I, so. I won't be advocating for it, and I, I appreciate your position, Tony. Yeah. So, uh, when it comes to the El Camino Real specific plan, which is a topic we went over on Monday, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think we talked about that. Um, it's sort of anticipated that for any considerable density changes, we would need a Prop A vote. Um, now let's say that happens and now let's say that voters reject the plan. Um, I asked Joy and Julie, and I'm going to ask both of you, uh, you know, would you vote to overturn that decision in order to meet state mandates? Tony, we'll start well, with you. Yeah, I would just say that that's not really a, a choice that we make. Mm-hmm. The council has no ability to overturn a Prop A vote. The prop, the, the, the votes that we took on our previous housing elements were, overturned by judge and that's the way our system works we take action under the law and a judge has the ability if there is a lawsuit to make a decision about the course that we take so there will be no decisions by the city council to overturn a prop a vote it just won't work it won't happen and um so because we'd be sued by the people our voters you know that would be illegal so it's it's your phrasing of the question is is uh you know a little bit of uh, misleading. But in the meantime, the question of any upzoning and the specific plan is certainly going to have some proposals for upzoning as part of the specific planning process. It's, uh, you know, we're looking at it in part because we're going to have an obligation under the housing element to have more uh, uh, multifamily units available for construction. It's going to, we're going to trigger the no net loss law pretty soon and we're going to have to find somewhere to upzone. And if we don't, we'll be out of compliance with the housing element law. And then there will be the same situation that you see in Santa Monica, where there have been property owners who have exercised what's known as a builder's remedy, which means that they can put on, they can build whatever size project they want. And in Santa Monica, where the height limit is currently eight stories, they have a project that will have the city will have no ability to reject that's going to be 14 stories tall. And we're going to really have a lot of work in the year ahead to make sure that we don't get in a situation where the no net loss law is going to cause our housing element to no longer comply with state housing element laws. So um, the experience that I have with trying to get a compliant housing element is critical. We don't have any time for on-the-job training, and so uh, experience matters in this position. So I will be leading the council, and we will come up with a solution to put before the voters. Sure. Okay. Um, Cindy, any thoughts? I appreciate that, Tony, but if your um, solution that you put before the voters is anything like the last two solutions you put before the voters, it will fail. And 
this is where experience has not served us well. We are, I mean, your track record is voting for every supersized development, including the one recently in my neighborhood and Goodson. Goodson that could have been denied for fire safety reasons. There's plenty of, there was plenty of data and information there. And when we talk about El Camino Real and um, a Prop A vote and putting a plan before the voters, if you put a plan before the voters that they can accept that's reasonable, that has some density, that isn't cramming 5,000 to 8,000 new units down their throats along with narrowed lanes and less lanes, they might actually accept it. Our, you know, our residents are smart and they're not unreasonable, but the way that we've gone about it um, has basically built a complete lack of trust from the residents for our city leadership. We have a trust issue. And suing the residents for uh, to overturn our Prop A vote didn't help it. Fortunately, Prop A survived and it will be triggered with any type of upzoning or height differentials for the El Camino Real plan, but I'd like to see that plan just totally taken apart, start over, let's not alarm the residents right out the gate and come up with something that is reasonable and that most importantly addresses our biggest need, which is affordable housing. 80% of these thousands of units that will be built will be market rate. We need to up the affordable numbers. When we've got a council that's telling us we need to be fair and equitable and yet raises that percentage uh, from 10 and 15 percent to 15 and 20 percent, I just there's just to me a disconnect there. So I think we can do better there as well. Tony, I mean, she said uh, that she thinks we can do better with that percentage. Do you agree? Well, this nexus study that we commissioned as a requirement under housing element law did not allow for the higher percentages of affordable. And uh, the reality is that we were under the gun. Um, We were under a court order to come up with a plan and that uh, because of that, we didn't have the opportunity to negotiate for the parcels that we were putting on the housing element map. Uh, The future housing element map that I will put forth is going to have some parcels that are negotiated with higher percentages of affordable as part of the commitment. Uh, and, you know, the reality is that in these circumstances where you're asking property owners, do they want their parcel on the housing element map, you have some ability to negotiate with them. In the situation we were in last time, there was no room for negotiation. And HCD was not interested in letting us to have that conversation. There were no time to do that. There will be enough time this time. And, you know, that's the approach that I'm going to take. Um, I think we can do better. There's no question that some of the parcels, one parcel went from ag zone land to R30. That's a pretty pretty big jump in value of that property and others went from r3 to r30 there's no question that's the value of that is something that the city didn't have the opportunity to take advantage of and so uh, there is a problem with getting so far behind the law that you are forced by a judge to make a decision that's satisfactory to HCD, and I will avoid that situation in the future. Um, the reality is that the specific planning that we're doing on El Camino Real is is always bound to cause people to get 
pretty wound up about the notion of more density. Our staff and our consultant, you know, they did basic math, how many acres, how many units per acre, and they come up with this 5,000, 8,000. No elected official would be willing to put 5,000 to 8,000 units in that in that corridor. And so you'll find a, a significantly lower number. And, and, you know, the reality is that there's a requirement to go to a vote. So, you know, this is going to meet the political reality. And, you know, I, I certainly am aware of that. I saw Measure T. I saw Measure U. Uh, I know that the uh, HCD didn't have the power that they had back then. They currently have a lot of power, and they have the attorney general on their side. And the last thing we want to do is get into more litigation. Millions of dollars have been spent on lawyers, and I don't want to get in that situation again. Hmm. I find it uh, interesting that uh, during the last housing element, you had an opportunity and the land to do 100% affordability on L7. And if I'm not mistaken, the residents in the area convinced a couple of council members that that property should not be used for 100% affordable. And what went on? Clark and Piraeus, they are at 15 and 20% affordable. They they were uh, extremely contentious. Neighbors, once again, having to put their own money into fighting for their communities. I mean, what really, really, really disturbs me is that we talk about the compliance and the housing element and our hands are tied, but there's the, 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 uh, the choices that are put forth are so badly engineered from the get-go, putting massive housing developments in bad locations with one way in and one way out, down narrow streets, in fire-prone areas might be addressing the housing element to your satisfaction, but it is putting communities into uphill, uh, upheaval and danger and also creating an intense amount more traffic. We, d- we are not updating our infrastructure. When you look at uh, the areas between Encinitas Boulevard, Lucadia Boulevard, Saxony, and Quail Gardens, for instance, and as most of us know, Lucadia is taking 40% of those Measure U properties. They're looking at putting at least 1,300 units into that area, and there are zero infrastructure upgrades planned. We begged for infrastructure upgrades for Clark, and we got nothing. I think the developer is putting in a bike lane on Union Street. Where they're going to put it, I don't know. There's no room. But If we don't plan better and stop taking our money and putting it into vanity projects and projects that cost $65 million to take lanes away on two miles of road on a major north-south road like the 101, we are not going to have the money to fix flooding, get safe rail crossings, um, uh, infrastructure upgrades, uh, water upgrades. I mean, we are, we're sadly behind and we're, we're already putting, we've already approved multiple projects that are going to be built and we haven't, we haven't prepared properly for them. And the city and residents are going to suffer for it. Things are going to start falling apart. Traffic is already terrible. People are impatient. They're angry. They're frustrated. Those are the issues that I look at as um, more um, 
you have to look at the whole picture when you're looking at putting in density. If you're going to do a little density here and there, fine. You still got to prepare for it. But shoot, Lucadia doesn't even have enough schools that can handle all of the approved projects that are going to be going up soon. And there, I haven't heard anything about any additional schools even being planned or forecasted. And the city needs to work with um, uh, the school system to start making that happen. Otherwise, <laughs> there's going to be even more traffic on the road for parents in Lucadia having to go across town to take their kids to school because we don't have we don't have buses. Uh, a lot of parents don't feel it's safe enough on our streets to have their kids walk or even ride their bike. And certainly it's going to be too far to walk if they have to go across town. So these are a couple of the practical issues that I never hear the city actually discuss. And this is a city that brags about its climate plan, but we've got more unnecessary trips because we don't have an, we don't have school buses. People are sitting in traffic, dropping off their kids. Kids are going to have to go across town to uh, to even be able to get into school. So these are a few of the types of things that I think about um, uh, from the standpoint of becoming mayor. And I understand they're not easy problems to solve. But as a businesswoman and a woman who has solved problems for over 30 years, I think I can handle it. And I think it won't take me 10 years, Tony. Yeah, well, and in fact, I'll be the mayor for the first time in 2023. And, you know, as a council member, I've learned a lot and will take that knowledge, that experience and make the best use of it. And, you know, the reality is that you talk about L7 being 100% affordable. That was a myth. It wasn't going to be 100% affordable. There was a huge gap. We had the land, but there was still no way to get to 100% affordable unless there were many, many millions more put into the project. So, and then you just the other day and just now pointed out that the reality is that Sunshine Gardens, Baldwin and Sons, there are three projects at the intersection of Quail Gardens Drive and Encinas Boulevard. There's the project at uh, Lucadia Boulevard with the Fox Point Farms. Adding L7 to that mix would have just crushed Quail Gardens Drive. And I know that you're frustrated because Clark Avenue was added, but the reality is that there were no alternatives. And we deliberated over some options. One of them included... Two a, months. One of them... Two, it was put in at the last minute. Well, there, it, there was not it, a lot we, of deliberation we, we, done. Even our oh, former we, we, even our former planning commission me. chair... You're interrupting me. I am. And even the reality our former is, planning commission chair, who you got fired didn't think that was a good well, site. Well, there and was, it wasn't. There was a previous planning commissioner that was on the task force as well. And, you know, he supported the measure you map. So, you know, it's it, the reality is that there were no good choices. We are a city that was built without multifamily housing as part of its general plan. And so we were stuck holding the bag. We did our best. And I get that you don't agree. I know that the Clark Project is in your backyard, and, you know, you don't want that in your backyard. Nobody does. My the, community doesn't want it in its backyard well, because it's dangerous. Not. Nobody does. I, I mean, if if the city had planned well, so a So you're interrupting separate, me again. Right, the reality they, is that you, the challenge of finding parcels is quite significant. And the city, in the next housing element, my hope is that we have the opportunity to put city assets in the mix. And I'm going to work to make that happen. And the re- at that point, you are getting closer to a higher percentage. Will it be 100? I hope. But the, the it's a big nut to crack. Will the city taxpayers be on the hook for the money that it would take to make it 100% affordable? I hope not. 
the question is whether state subsidies and county subsidies are going to be enough to get you to 100%. But there's a lot of work to be done. The experience that I have will be valuable in that conversation. Um, I want to interject here just because I got a question from a community resident who was concerned about the affordability in Encinitas. And specifically, she asked me, um, 37% of people who live in Encinitas are renters, and it's hard to find a rental for less than $3,000. What would you or, or do you say to members of the community who come to you about the rising cost of rent in Encinitas? Now, I want to wrap this up and tie this to our conversation because I feel like there's this obvious uh, question about affordability. Um, there's, there's questions about infrastructure, but I think sort of bridging the gap, um, there's like two separate issues here. One is, uh, given the state mandates, what do we do? But the other question is, like, these state mandates themselves, is this the right approach? Like, is, and I know as mayor, as, as a potential mayor, uh, neither of you will be able to control what the state does. But uh, I'm curious as to whether you two personally uh, think that the state is taking matters into its own hands and doing this the right way uh, versus the issue of, given what the state is doing, we have to respond accordingly. Um, so I want to start with uh, you, Tony, and just answer um, what do you think about the state's approach and uh, what, what do you wish was different? Well, I disagree with the state's approach with regard to usurping local control. Um, but, you know, the reality is that having local control has left us without the diversity of housing that is uh, common in communities that have, you know, that particular value, that particular ethic. We became a single family home community and, you know, it has cost uh, the young people of our community because they have no alternatives. They cannot afford a single family home. And, you know, this question of rent, the, the fact is that we live in a capitalistic society. Housing was commoditized. People invest their money in housing and they become landlords and they rent and you know so what ability does the city have to get in the middle of that um you know it i think it's very limited and it's not something that i necessarily want to pursue but i think that the the notion of our community being able to build multifamily housing so that the so that the lower income uh People that live in our community or that want to live in our community, that work in our community, will have an opportunity. Um, it isn't going to be easy, and there's no question that uh, being a coastal city, the you know the rents are going to be high. Uh, I have a friend who's looking for a place. I just spent some time on Craigslist looking for one bedroom, one bath apartments, and the least expensive one was twenty six fifty. So you know it's it's. Uh, really a shame and i hope that what will happen when we start seeing some of these new projects come online is that you're going to theoretically have the market forces that are going to cause rents to drop and you know i i am not an economist i am a businessman in the printing business and i can print projects but you know i'm going to have to trust the economists when they say that the market forces are real and that one way to impact rents is going to be to have more units available sure so two questions for you cindy first is this question of uh do you agree with the state's approach um and then the second question is given what the state is doing given the the current state of things um and the, the requirements that are on us like how do you as mayor um improve affordability um in our community while balancing that with local control? Um, so I don't agree that Sacramento should be in our backyard and uh, some bureaucrat 
up in Sacramento telling us what is good for our community. So I am not in, in agreement uh, with the state uh, imposing uh, their will on us. Uh, our city incorporated in 1986 uh, for the very reason of ha- securing our local control. And now we see it slipping away. Um, I think a, a very uh, simple way to get to more affordable is increasing our inclusionary number percentage. Uh, I don't care if it's 30, 40, 50 percent, the higher the better. And we will start to build more affordable, keeping in mind that um, the average medium income in San Diego County is about $107,000 a year. you know, affordable is not necessarily low income, but it could be more affordable. And I get it. Uh, when I first moved here, uh, it'll be almost 12 years ago, I rented. I couldn't afford to buy a home. I'd just been divorced. Uh, and at 58 years old, uh, just about four years ago, I bought my first home. Um, and it's very modest and in a very blue collar neighborhood. Uh, I cherish uh, its small town feel and narrow streets where kids can up till now play in the street. Uh, and we've got a little bit of room in our backyards. I think that's most people's, many people's American dream. Um, but we see it slipping away here and we all really have invested a lot to be here. And quite frankly, if I wanted to buy a home in Encinitas today, I couldn't afford it. So I get it. And as a matter of fact, uh, my significant other and I actually subsidize a woman who got priced out of her apartment right on Saxony. Uh, she lives in Mark's condo. Um, and we not only have given her a reduced rate, but Mark, who is a contractor, subsidizes her rent every month. So we get it. We understand. Um, but I think there is more that the city can do. Um, and we just don't need more market rate homes. Okay. We, we, we really need a little bit more balance. Yeah. Okay. Um, Final thoughts on this topic, and then I want to move on to something else. Either of you? Yeah, I actually want to point out that it isn't something that we can arbitrarily pick a percentage of affordability for these projects. Um, the, the developers and property owners have to have the ability to build, and if you, you know, exact, you know, uh, too, many, too high a percentage of affordable units that are deed restricted, it'll be a taking under the Constitution. It's just a fundamental, you know, financing and you know the fort the ability to be able to construct a project and that's what hcd is getting involved in you can't create a percentage of affordability that that provides a disincentive for the construction of the project and so there's got to be a balance between the percentage that we come up with and the ability for that particular parcel to carry that percentage and if the land is currently valued at r3 and it goes to r30 you may have the ability to increase the percentage, but we have to look at this parcel by parcel. Sandy, do you have any quick response? Or? Yeah, I do. Um, first of all, when you um, when a parcel goes from R3 to R30, the developers have an immediate um, benefit in uh, upzoning without having to pay for it. Uh, so they're already to the plus side. And our current planning chair, uh, uh, Kevin Doyle, crunched the numbers and we can do 50% affordable with the developer still making a profit. And, and two things that come to mind. First of all, we're probably sliding, we are sliding into a recession. Uh, the price of homes is 
going down. It probably won't go down terrifically in Encinitas. But what that usually does is it, 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 in every recession that we've experienced in the past, it slows down building. And that means developers will be hungry to develop, to get in and do projects, and maybe they'll consider less profit. And we, even in San Diego, have lower income or affordable housing developers. We've got a lot of developers here in town who are big developers, big names, or locals uh, that don't specialize in that. So I think we can get more creative and we can work towards um, raising that percentage and also finding developers that are willing to take a little less money and they're certainly not going to do it. Uh, there's going to be a profit in there for them, but does it have to be millions and millions of dollars? Not necessarily. Yeah, so it, Final it, thoughts? It, it, yeah. it reveals a fundamental lack of knowledge on the way this works. The affordable developers partner generally with the developers. They may build a section, and the reason that they do that is because they go get a tax credit, and there's a, uh, they generally will manage the units that they build. So it's not like... Yeah, can, so we should be doing more of it. Like, it's not like you just go, hey, pick an affordable housing developer and, and yeah, take get less it. profit. I, I get no, that's it. not how it works. Yeah, you got to make it that's happen. That's not how it works. Yeah, you have to... You well, have that's to, not how it works. Yeah, but you have to... That may be the case, but we're not doing that. Why... Aren't we? Why are we rolling over for well, these eighty percent? I'm just telling you that the think, deals are, yeah. are made by these folks that have been at this for a while. And you know, the God's honest truth: the property owners are the ones that have profited from the upzoning, and they sell it to developers. And then the developers have a box that they've been put in by the price that they're being required to pay. And so, you know, I'm not. You know, the reality is that we've got to deal with the market the way it works. The reality is, so is that we have to increase to, that percentage of numbers. Otherwise, we're going to have we're going to have a glut of. I'm all for yeah. going as high as we can. Good. I'm glad to That's hear you say it. that. And I always was. I agree on something. And in the end, I'm sure you know, we can I, agree I, on a lot I more. Love, I love Kevin Doyle, but his expertise in this particular field was not. You know, he didn't bring those bona fides to the conversation. And the city had hired an expert in this particular field. And his opinion, the expert's opinion, was that we could only go to where we went. And, you know, I, I actually, I believe that we could have, yes, we could have actually gone to 25%. We didn't even do With some. that. With some. Yes. And we should have. Okay. So um, we'll, we'll agree to disagree. And I, 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 I appreciate the discourse. Yes. Uh, so. There was much has been made uh, due recently about this, and it came up on Monday, it came up last Monday as well between Joy and Julie, this issue of appointments on the council. Um, Joy Lines was an appointment, um, and there's there have been others. So I just want to ask um, for you two, like, I mean, obviously you don't call the shots as mayor, but should there be a vacancy on the city council in the future, do you personally believe that it should be filled by appointment or via a special election? I'll start with you, Cindy. Thank you. Um, so, of course, as mayor, you have an equal vote with other council members, so you're one of five votes. But I can promise voters that if a, um, uh, a seat becomes open when I am mayor, I will always vote for a special election. We've called the registrar, registrar of voters, and we can do a district election by mail-in ballot only. It's considerably cheaper. And I think that the price is worth residents choosing their own 
representatives. It's incredibly important. And I believe because three out of four of our council members were initially appointed, it is part of our ongoing problem. And that more balance in our city government where we're having discourse like that. I mean, Tony and I may disagree, but I'm sure that we can find an equal ground somewhere where we can get things done, where it's not more one side than the other. There has to be some balance. But having our uh, district representatives appointed, to me, has not served the voters. And that the, the residents are most important. So I would always, always vote for an election. What about you, Tony? Uh, you know, I, I would prefer to have people pick their representatives, but at the same time, uh, the question of resources is real in Encinitas, and uh, the city clerk said a $200,000 election was what we would be looking at with, uh, you know, the appointment once Jody Hubbard stepped down. So, you know, uh, we had the opportunity to consider applicants, and um, I actually supported someone other than Joy for the appointment. It was a three-to-one vote, and uh, Joy has been a, a real pleasant to work with and someone that I agree with on a wide variety of issues. Um, the reality is that the voters of Encinitas are um, generally very supportive of the appointments that we make, the majority of them. There's no question that there are people in the community that don't agree with the direction that the council currently is headed. And, you know, that's the nature of this body politic. They get to raise uh, these issues, and, and one of them, they get frustrated about the fact that the council doesn't agree with them. And so I get it. Uh, but in the meantime, it, it's going to be interesting to see if I become mayor, if we uh, have the appointment opportunity, can we get to three to one or four, four zero on an appointment? I don't know. If it ends up two to two, then it automatically goes to an election and we spend the money. Um, it takes time as well. So that's the other disadvantage of going to an election is that, you know, the, the remainder of the term is, is uh, you know, spent, a portion of it spent conducting an election. It's not the end of the world, but, um, you know, if, if the council members can come to a consensus on a candidate, I think there's, um, it's a legitimate way of coming up with a fifth member. And it's in the state laws to, to do it that way. And, and uh, you know, I am not going to, you know, make any pronouncements about what I'll support or not support. I want to see who would the applicants be and see what the will of the body is going to be. Cindy, so we have, we have time for you to make a quick response to that if you'd like, or I have a related thought. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm hearing that Tony would not necessarily support an election. Uh, as I've stated before, absolutely will every time. I think that the will of the people uh, should always be um, considered first. Uh, it is our right to vote for our representatives. Uh, and if they don't like that representative, they can vote them out. If they like them, they can keep them in. But it is, it is our choice. Mm -hmm. And um, for residents to be denied their right to choose because it costs 50000 100000 200000 And again, if you do mail-in ballot only, it's very inexpensive comparatively. And yet we're going to put $65 million into streetscape. It's, you know, this doesn't make sense to me as a uh, proponent for um, residents. Again, they should, it should be their choice. Well, 
Streetscape versus uh, special election are apples and oranges. Um, and in the meantime, um, you know, we have a representative democracy. And there are definitely questions that we go to the voters for for direct democracy. But we were, you know, I was voted for by the people and they entrusted in me the ability to make certain decisions under the law. And the law gives the council the uh, right to vote. And so if we can come to a consensus on, a, on a, an appointment, um, it makes sense. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, going to be one of those things that we'll have to see who, who is on the council in, uh, when we do the swearing in in December. Cindy, unless you object, I'd like to ask a related question. Um, sure. Is that okay? So uh, this, this is actually going to be directed at you, Tony, which is um, there's this sort of perception, um, and you may take issue with it, that your policies, that your stances um, are very much, um, often not always, uh, sort of aligned with that of the, of the mayor of the current city council, that there's kind of a general direction that the city council is taking the city as a whole, and that the mayor... Uh, and that you are aligned in one way or another with the mayor. And the mayor's obviously not running again. That's why we're here. Um, she's running for state senate. Um, but I'm curious to know, uh, what do you think about this sort of perception of you as a successor, as it were, to the current mayor, um, as sort of carrying on that um, brand of, of politics? And secondly, I mean, I think it's relevant since... Uh, She's been mayor for, for quite some time now, and a lot of her policies are still going to impact the city long beyond her tenure. What do you think about the mayor, the legacy that the mayor, Blake Spear, is leaving in Encinitas? Well, I uh, would say that she's leaving a strong legacy. I think that the city of Encinitas is in great shape, both fiscally and um, policy-wise, the direction that we're heading. We just spent $25 million on upgrading infrastructure that was, you know, the undercrossing of the railroad tracks at El Portal is brand new. It gave people access to the ocean, gave West Side residents access to the elementary school. The streetscape segment that we uh, completed between Marchetta and Basil, that's a 100-year-old highway. And we upgraded it so that it is a complete street where people can not only drive very effectively, but they can ride their bikes safely and they can walk on the brand new sidewalks in ways that are very much more relaxed. And I think it's going to open up a opportunity for, you know, a placemaking that people will really enjoy that area. Uh, I walk it regularly and also ride my bike quite a bit and it has made all the difference in the world. But in the meantime, back to your question, which is the legacy of Catherine Blakespeare um, is is strong. She served six years as mayor and two as council member. I've served 10 years. I've been in the middle of every decision that she's made. Um, I have not always agreed with her. Um, we've had some uh, pretty uh, raucous debate. And in fact, uh, there are a half dozen decisions that I disagree with her on. I didn't agree with going to the judges uh, judge about um, Prop A. I thought that that was the wrong approach, that we shouldn't do that. Um, there have been others. Homeless parking lot. I didn't support the homeless parking lot. And that was something that she strongly supported. I eventually came around. We were in a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I do think it's a valuable program. But I thought that the way that that was broached with the public could have, you know, needed some work. Um, but in the end, you look at people's politics and there's no question that the issue of Venn diagram is part of the way that you, you see yourself, uh, I see myself working with my colleagues. 
how much overlap do we have on issues? And it's there's no doubt that the current council has a ton of overlap. I've also served with Kristen Gaspar, Mark Muir, and you know our Venn diagrams didn't have the same amount of overlap, but I still managed to work with them. Most of the decisions that the council made when when Kristen Gaspar was mayor were unanimous as well. And did we have differences of opinion? Absolutely. Both of them didn't think that we should buy uh, Pacific View, but we made that happen too. So you know the reality is that. No two of us are alike. Nobody, I certainly didn't toe the line that Catherine Blakespear has, has tried to draw. And I'm an independent thinker. Um, I have my own ideas about what's good policy for the city that I have, that I grew up in and I love. And there's gonna be disagreements, but ultimately if we're all working to make our city better, I think that there's the potential for much more agreement than disagreement. Um, Cindy, so to you, um, do you feel as though there's sort of this perception of the public that um, the council is like aligned in a certain cohesive, unanimous direction on a lot of the issues? And um, how, do, how do you kind of fit that into the picture of, of Tony and the mayor's legacy uh, that she's leaving behind in Sanitas in terms of the direction that she's taken the city? So yes to your first question. And secondly, my biggest concern is yes, Tony will uh, continue the, our hands are tied, yes, we've been talking about it for 10 years and maybe we'll get it done, uh, policies that we've had, uh, uh, the constant approvals of every density project, uh, hands are tied, the fact that we still have flooding in Lucadia, the fact that North Lucadia still doesn't have a safe crossing, the fact that the train horns are driving residents crazy and has not been addressed. Yes, it's hard work. Yes, you have to go through a lot of bureaucratic red tape hoops, et cetera, to get there, but you gotta start somewhere and now is just too late. A lot of this stuff needs to be addressed. We need to be budgeting it for it. Um, to me, those would be the priorities before projects like Streetscape. And regardless of how you feel about Streetscape, my issue with Streetscape is just the money and the funding. We have debt from it. It's cost a lot of money for a mere two miles. When we have so many other priorities, especially with all of this density coming, um, it's just how you're prioritizing funds and putting the more practical aspect in need first infrastructure, uh, you know, mitigating traffic. Um, we've talked about, you know, all of this before. So I, I think my priorities would be very different than Tony's or Catherine's in many ways. Um, and, uh, I, you know, we need new blood in city council and we need to get back to focusing on the residents and residents' needs. We have time for a rebuttal on this issue from each of you. Tony, do you want to yeah, say? Yeah, I would just say that, you know, I would have welcomed Cindy to participate in the budgeting conversations and to express her opinion on what she thought the priorities should be, but I never saw you there. And, you know, certainly there are, a, you know, a group of people that oppose streetscape. But again, it's a hundred-year-old piece of infrastructure. It needs some upgrade, and we're making it. And the $65 million includes stormwater facilities that will address the flooding in Lucadia. So it's all part and parcel, and you you know the reality is that the challenges, the projects that you just laid out that we haven't been able to accomplish, that it's resource driven. 
And so as the resources become available, we will be able to do more. And that's what we're working on, you know, and it's uh, we have uh, budget constraints and I think we've managed the budget very well. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those situations where it's a it's a tough choice to make and people have different, you know, ideas about the direction that we should go. It's a group of five people that deliberate and have public conversation about it. And I think the decisions that we've made have been good. Streetscape's a 17-year-old studied project, and there was a lot of community consensus that it was the right project. And so I'm very proud of the fact that we finally got that project underway. Um, Cindy, we have, again, time for one final thought. Um, You claim we had consensus, but we didn't have a vote. And it was a hell of a lot of money from budget and different budgets and putting us in debt. There's no vote on Streetscape. I mean, it it was a big project affecting quite... and there were multiple Quite a few councils people. that made the decision. Yeah. Um, and and that's, the, that's what representative democracy is about. But the reality is also that we put a lot of money into streetscape when we have failing infrastructure otherwise. And that's where I question the um, necessity to put $65 million into a little over two miles of road. And also, and, and again, there's there's various thoughts here, but... I just find it very odd that we have a city that is taking away lanes when we're adding density to our city. Um, we're just we're just looking at potentially more traffic down the road, and those are I mean those are realistic concerns that many individuals have. Well, I think that the traffic engineers will show you that it can still move the same volume of traffic. So it's one of those situations where you know it's counterintuitive. I get it. The notion of a lane diet is counterintuitive but it makes people safer and it calms traffic. And there are many benefits that you get from the effects of both calming traffic and making people safer. Okay. Um, I, want, I, I, I want the city to be a slow speed city. I don't want Highway 101 I to be that. the I-5 bypass. It's, it's, you know, when the traffic gets stuck on I-5, people are diving off and coming to Highway 101 just to drive through. It's not, you know, the ideal situation. Well, so. they'll still go to 101, and now they'll go to Neptune, and now they'll go to Vulcan, and no, now they'll go to Saxony, and they'll on, go to Quail they Gardens can't get Drive. They on Neptune, and, and I, I, we're not seeing that. And we've been through with construction. You've got a bike, you're months. not driving it. I drive it, I see it. We don't see it. Yeah. There's no. There's uh, no we'll, we'll have to respectfully no disagree that. there. Yeah. There's a there's no little disagreement there. Um, housekeeping Sorry, is yes. uh, we, um, we're at 3 30, aren't we? Um, do are you both willing to engage in one more topic or what's the sure okay sure Sure. so as you both are aware um, the mayor of Encinitas is expected to have a seat likely on Sandag's board of directors Um, now the regional transportation plan um, has been talked about a lot in these last few months and it's getting a lot of scrutiny one way or the other um, for a number of reasons Um, for the uh, mileage tax um, you know, people are concerned about the mileage tax, how that fits in with the gas tax. People are also concerned about sort of the direction the plan's taking us as um, a larger community, as, as a regional community. You know, is this is this investment the right one into the right types of infrastructure, you know, rail, bus, et cetera? Like, is this the direction we want to be taking? Um, you know, there's um, some experts I've been talking to recently who, who feel as though this plan moves us in a direction away from the future of transit, which they believe is going to be automated self-driving cars. So there's a lot of conversation around, is this the correct investment? And then there's the plan itself is being um, nitpicked. So uh, 
I want to ask each of you, and I'll start with Cindy, um, do you support the current iteration of Sandag's regional transportation plan, and why or why not? No. Okay. Um, I certainly don't support a mileage tax, um, and I didn't support the idea of taxes, any taxes that would have been put on the ballot towards the regional transportation plan. Um, I think it just costs a lot of money, and who's going to pay for it? Yeah. I mean, it's... It, it's a big, bold plan with a big, bold price tag. Um, and I think that uh, we can focus more on uh, fuel-efficient vehicles, uh, self-driving, uh, uh, electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we can be, um, I think we can do a lot more there. Uh, I mean, and there's already... Uh, the concerns about how revenue is going from gas-powered vehicles, uh, how, how with more electric vehicles, there's less gas tax revenue. So there's already disparities there. Um, how are we going to address those issues as well? I mean, somebody's got to pay for any and all of this going forward. It's usually the taxpayers. Uh, do they want to shoulder the billion of a, what is it, $64 billion plan? No, I don't think that the general public has been really excited about it. And I think Sandag is struggling with it. They would probably be best served if they went back to the drawing board and put some more realistic plans uh, that uh, don't dissolve people's ability to drive. And listen, let's say they do get the money and they do raise taxes and it all happens and they build this infrastructure. Who, who says anybody's going to use it? Mm. I mean, I'm from a city where people did use mass transit, but it was built into the system and it was really efficient. Uh, most people know that buses uh, in our communities are, even the trains, you know, they don't run late. The buses don't necessarily run on time. There's not a lot of them. It, it is a, it would be a sea change for people to get out of their cars and I just don't see it happening realistically, mm-hmm. you know, certainly in our lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the question is like, will people, you invest all this money into the RTP, but that doesn't mean that people are going to use the infrastructure. That doesn't mean people are yeah. going to use the bus, use the rail. Uh, t- and, and, and I have to tell you, uh, also someone who used mass transit in New York to yeah. get to the city, hated it, would never do it again. It was unsafe as a woman. I, I can't even tell you how many bad encounters you have. Uh, we currently have um, uh, issues on our transit now. I know that uh, there's a TB scare. A couple of people uh, have been diagnosed recently. You know, people in California live here for a reason. They enjoy our car cu- culture. If you want to live in a mass transit city, you can go to New York or Chicago. Well, Tony, um, what do you make of that? Well, I... I will point out that it's not a $64 billion system. It's a $164 billion. Sorry, sorry. I misquoted. Thank you. you. It is, um, you know, intended to make the option of taking public transit reasonable. She ticked off a few things, slow running buses, not enough trains, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But a big chunk of the money is intended to create more operational you know, uh, trains and buses so that people can have seven-minute uh, headways. So, you know, it's it's intended to create a system that provides people with a choice. I am blessed. I have a choice. I have a 
car. We have multiple cars in our house and I can choose to take a car. And unfortunately, I, I can't choose to take public transit to very many places. And that's what we're trying to address is to create a system where you could choose to do one or the other. And for those people who don't have a choice, there's even more reason to improve their lives with a better public transit system. I have served on the North County Transit District Board for 10 years, and I know that the Regional Transportation Plan has some shortcomings. And my experience as a board member at NCTD, I think is going to be very valuable for the conversation about how to, what the next iteration of the Regional Transportation Plan is going to look like. Sure. And it will, you know, be critical for those of us in Encinitas because, and coastal communities, because we have the Losan Corridor going through our, our city, cutting it and, you know, cutting right down the middle, not the middle, but through from north to south. So it's really important to have somebody engaged in this conversation that's knowledgeable about the potential impacts. And that's where my experience matters. Do you? Uh, in the end, this notion that we're going to have an autonomous vehicle system is just a pipe dream. It's, it may be here, but it's going to be so far down the road that it's critical that we continue to look at ways to make our bus system and our train system more efficient. Okay. So a couple questions for you. One is you mentioned that you did have some issues with the plan, so I want to hear about that. But I also want to know, um, had you been in Mayor Blakespear's shoes, would you have voted for the iteration of the plan as it stands now? Well, my preference would have been to start by not having the mileage tax in there. The mileage tax is an unproven, there you have some pilot programs going, but the state really doesn't know how they're going to manage that. So it was kind of silly to have that as part of the original, uh, you know, RTP that they voted on. Um, So, you know, but the mileage tax is intended to get to this issue that Cindy mentioned, which is that the wealthy are buying a heck of a lot of electric vehicles, not paying a nickel in gas tax. So there's a hole in our, you know, our pot that we're collecting money to, you know, not only deal with public transit, but also our, our road system and repairs that are necessary on our road system. So, you know, at some point we're going to have to have, uh, you know, a really difficult decision to make as to how do we fill that gap. And, you know, if somebody's got a better idea, so be it. But the reality is that the piloting of the uh, mile tax does show some ability to deal with the difference in income. So if you drive a lot of miles because you've got to drive further to work and you're lower income, there's a there's a way to manage all of that. But the conversation has been kind of usurped and it's become, you know, there's just a, you know, hue and cry about this thing. And I just think that it's important that we have a reasonable conversation about the pros and cons of whatever approach we take. Yes, the taxpayers pay for it. What kind of system is in the best interest of the taxpayers? An effective public transit system. The talk in this particular plan has a lot of focus on high-speed rail. The city, the, the county does not have any, uh, you know, there's no benefit to the county really at high-speed rail because, number one, there's too many stations that they need to stop at. So the mm-hmm. benefits of high speed mm-hmm. are lost. And there's no upstream high-speed rail system. So we don't want to independently install this high-speed rail system that goes to nowhere. And we have a significant amount of money that we've invested in infrastructure with the locomotives and train sets that we have. 
Um, San Diego, the MTS has some great trolleys and you know they want to improve and add, add lines there. Um, we have two transit systems in San Diego County. There's the North County Transit District and there's MTS. You know, I don't think that's the most efficient thing in the world, but the reality is that San Diego has an urban core. We don't have an urban core, although the transit corridor between Oceanside and Escondido is as close as we get. There are people on the, core, on the transit corridor from Oceanside to Escondido that are transit dependent, and we need to do a better job of helping them to move so that they can get up and rise up in the world and have greater opportunities. We need to expand the ability for them to take public transit to better jobs. And so we'll keep working on that. Cindy, agree, disagree? Uh, I, was I know there's a lot said. Yeah, there was a lot said, and I, I'm, I'm not going to go, go on okay. as long. I know we're, we're almost out of time, yeah. but I just think that um, the reality is that uh, $64 billion, $164 billion, I don't care how many billion we spend, it's still going to be years and years and years before any of that becomes a reality. And many voters remember that Sandag made a lot of promises in the last round of billions of dollars that they were to be spending that never got done. So there, again, you know, transparency issues, trust issues, Sandag doesn't have the best reputation. I personally don't uh, feel that um, I would want to uh, approve any additional taxes uh, for Sandag to um, create a system that is going to take years and years and years to happen, that there's no guarantees it's going to happen. Uh, and the other thing that comes to mind is uh, just because you build it doesn't mean they'll come. Yeah, and, and let me agree with Cindy. The, the challenge is that this whole plan is predicated on a, a 50-year timeline. And so, you know, how the thing rolls out and what, what systems are in the front end and yeah. what systems are in the back, it's, it's complicated. And, you know, but the reality is that the way we fund public transit in our country requires that projections be made about how much money is going to be raised by a half cent sales tax. And it's based upon how the economy is going to do. So if the economy takes a, a dive, you don't raise as much revenue as you projected when you had the measure on the ballot. And so this is a, a, a challenge that most people understand exists. But you know, it's it's real. The last time it was on the ballot was in 2016, and there were some calculations that they did that promised more money than was real. Um, Sandag did lose credibility, and I regret that because you're you know you need to people need to be able to trust you. And so, in the end, um, you know, this was uh, one of those sales tax measures that only got 58 percent. Only got 58 percent. We go, you know, 50, the, the democracy, you go with the majority of the vote. Oh, no, not in California. You have to have 66 and two-thirds in order to raise taxes. So it isn't one man, one person, one vote in, in the way we raise our revenue. Um, but ultimately, it's really critical that we come up with a plan that people can embrace and vote to support the revenue-raising measure that will be on the ballot. All right, so we have time for one final thought on this, but... Uh, my final thought is that Sandag should have come back, come up with better ways to fund this plan because ultimately a mileage tax is uh, born on the backs of those who can least afford it. Um, and we are looking at potential recession, 
potential layoffs. I, I don't think the good people of San Diego are going to vote for, even if it was on the ballot, any increases in taxes. It's just not going to happen. Most of us feel taxed to the gills. Um, so Sandag's approach, again, not trustworthy. Uh, there's the, the lack of credibility. Um, I, I can't defend them or their plan. Okay. Um, I have one final question for, for each of you, um, but I want to, in the last few minutes we have, I want to give you both a chance to circle back to something you feel like wasn't adequately addressed or that you wanted to provide more commentary on. And if, if there's nothing, I'll, I'll move ahead. But Tony? Um, well, I think that, you know, especially with the incident today, the issue of homelessness is one that, you know, is on everybody's mind. I know that we're at wit's end. We have people that, you know, need help and are refusing help. Um, and so we're, you know, going to continue to work with the sheriff's department and the county to address homelessness to the best of our abilities. Uh, the Boise decision is, puts some constraints on what we can do, but we're going to continue to work to come up with solutions. And uh, I look forward to the community conversation because I know this is on everybody's mind. And homelessness is, is mm -hmm. something that we've just recently, you know, it, uh, over the last two years, we have a homeless action plan and we've been more aggressive in trying to address the issues of homelessness. Uh, I think that it didn't help to have a pandemic strike and, you know, the economic impacts of that has created additional homelessness. Um, but we've got a system that it makes it difficult to get your arms around because if you're doing a point in time count once a year, you know, how many people are homeless out there? And, you know, I look forward to the county implementing the by name list and, and uh, the county he Department of Health and Human Services getting actively engaged in our uh, homeless challenges throughout the county. Mm -hmm. Cindy, out of everything that was said today, anything you want to circle back to? Yes, two issues. One, homelessness and crime. Okay. Uh, I'm glad that our trends are improving. I would certainly work with... Um, our neighboring cities, as well as our sheriff's department, to further uh, uh, improve the the trend towards less crime, certainly less homelessness. Um, but I'd like to pivot back to local control because mm -hmm. I feel very passionately about it, mm -hmm. having uh, led uh, my own community um, that uh, will be very disrupted by a decision that the city council made to approve a project that uh, both our Traffic and Safety Commission had concerns about and our Planning Commission voted against 4-0. Um, I want residents to know that I will fight for your neighborhoods as hard as I fought for my own and will do the best I can to regain local control. There are organizations that are working with cities and government leaders that feel Sacramento shouldn't be in our backyards and every city should not be a suburb of L.A. Okay. Thank you. Last question I thought might just be a fun one. Um, say something that you admire about your opponent. Tony? Um, Make it good, Tony. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I don't know her well, mm -hmm. um, and so it does make it a bit of a challenge. Uh, I understand she surfs. That's always, I think, admirable in a beach community to have that experience. My surfing days are long, long ago. Um, and I know that she is a successful businesswoman. And, you know, that's, uh, 
something to be regarded highly. And mm -hmm. so I wish you continued success in your business. I hope you know Thank that you, Tony. Uh, serving on the city council is a part-time gig. And so not everybody can afford to quit their day job. I wasn't able to. So, I wouldn't either. Uh, yes. I will be continuing to work as, as a printing sales, printing production manager. And uh, um, so that's what I would say. Yeah. Sandy? Well, you know what they say, um, if you want something done, give it to the busiest person. Uh, and, uh, but Tony, um, I do appreciate that you are a local and you do love your city um, and your many years of service. Though we disagree strongly on policy and issues in many of your votes, uh, I promise that if I were elected, I would work in my best capacity to work with you and that we would certainly have lively debates, but I think we can get to conclusions. Mm -hmm. You've always been nothing but uh, respectful, and I appreciate yes, that. Yes, and I think that one of the things that I learned when I was elected is that some of the decisions that you make um, are are not easy because they're not what you necessarily want to do, and but they are what the law requires you to do. So the the criticisms of some of the decisions regarding the housing element are, um, you know, basically because of obligations under the law. And we've spent many millions of dollars on attorneys, and you're going to be in a position where you have to make a choice between a decision that is going to get you sued or a decision that comports with the law. And so that's the hardest part of the job. I understand that, and I welcome the challenge. All right. Well, I think uh, that concludes today. Thank you so much, Dimitri, for coming on. This podcast, again, was sponsored by Max Lux Media. Thank you guys for uh, coming on. And, uh, yeah, we're going to keep doing this. Um, hopefully every week and moving forward. Um, uh, next week, we're going to be welcoming um, a couple guests to talk more about the housing issue um, because that's kind of prime going into election season. And we're going to even be getting some uh, state and assembly races going on Great. with this podcast. So Super. I appreciate both coming on and getting this started. And yeah, that's all I have to say. Uh, stay classy, yeah. San Diego.